Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're really glad to have you with us today, and we are back in a real pub. So we're live, and we have a, a studio audience. We've got uh, some friends here with us. Say hello, friends. All right, and we have our waiter who has just uh, arrived with yet another drink for Tom. What's this, seven? <laughs> Eight? Seven and who's counting? <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, just to kind of uh, let you know, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. In case this is your first time listening to the Theology Podcast, now you know who I am. I've written a few things. And I'm joined by my friends like I am every week. And uh, I'll turn to my right and go to my friend Tom. And Tom, tell us about you. I'm Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. All right. And Glenn? Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. All right. Well, you've got a big event coming up. Glenn in Nashville. Do you want to take a moment to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, October 1st through 3rd is the FLF conference. Probably the only Christian conference <laughs> that is going to be conducted this year. Right. Um, there are going to be, well, I heard about 750 people they're estimating right now. Excellent, excellent. So it'll be good turnout. Uh, I'm one of the keynoters. Uh, a lot of other people look it up. It's going to be fun. Excellent. Lynn, are you going to get to go? You bet. All right, so Lynn will be there, and we'll actually have a booth for the uh, the podcast with some uh, pint glasses and some T-shirts and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, I, I, we encourage you to, to, to show up for that. Well, uh, getting to the, uh, the subject of the day, it's my day, and uh, as I was reflecting a little bit on what I'd like to talk about, it occurred to me that I've got a number of projects you know, you know how it is. You've got these projects, and you and you think, man, that's a that's something I really, I really want to do. In fact, I, I really look forward to the day when I can say that I did it, that it's actually behind me and done. Yeah, but, like finishing trilogies inside. Of me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Forgive me. Forgive me for I have sinned. But <laughs> anyway, believe me, I, I do want to get that done. I do. I really do. But uh, Tolkien felt the same way. And Tolkien was afraid at uh, various points in his life that he actually wouldn't, would uh, not finish the things that he was working on. In fact, I think we can actually say he didn't actually finish in his lifetime some of the most important things to him that he was working on. I'm thinking particularly of the Cimmerillion and sort of the legendarium behind the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and so forth. But the way Tolkien worked... If he lived a thousand, right. he probably wouldn't have finished them. That's, that's, that's true. That's just true. But at the same time, you know, there's this, I think, this sort of festering uh, and uh, sort of uh, fear that many uh, people who are engaged in any kind of uh, art uh, have to deal with. And that is, you know, uh, first of all, am I going to be able to get this stuff done? The, the next thing is, uh, will anybody notice even if I do? Will they understand? Will they sympathize with it? Will it be appreciated? That, that sort of thing. Well, Tolkien was a human being, and he had the fe- the, the, this, this, uh, this kind of festering fear or set of fears that I described. And, uh, and early on in his, uh, in his writing, his life as a published author, uh, he, he, wrote a, he wrote a short story that uh, very well... Uh, I think, um, and marvelously captures this fear, but also provides a, a, a kind of consolation 
to, to an artist. And I'm thinking about the story Leaf by Niggle. Now, Leaf by Niggle is uh, very, you know, uh, easy to read and um, a short, short story that you can finish in just a, you know, a little while, if you, you know, in, in one sitting if you sit down to read it. And uh, it was published after The Hobbit was published, but before Lord of the Rings or anything else that he had written. Uh, and so it, I think was a, it, was, it was finally published in 1947, if I remember correctly. I've, I've actually got a, a standalone uh, a book that is Leaf by Niggle, and it's got an afterword by Tom Shippey. Hmm. And uh, in, the, in the front of the book, you know, where you have the, the books that are also by this author, you have uh, books listed in the order in which they're published. So you have The Hobbit, and then Leaf by Niggle, then On Fairy Stories, and Farmer Giles of Ham, which is interesting. Farmer Giles of Ham came out before Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the, the, uh, then you get Lord of the Rings, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, The Road Goes Ever On and On. And then uh, the last story that he published while he was alive was Smith of Witten Major, which I consider uh, a gem. Uh, really, uh, I think, a uh, very marvelously uh, condensed version of the kind of magic that, that you, you actually have in Lord of the Rings in terms of I mean, literary magic, in terms of a fairy story. And then all the other things that we know, uh, I know, uh, you know, that, are, that come from the pen of J.R. Tolkien were actually published after he was dead. Yeah. You know, stuff like, uh, you know, Silmarillion, obviously, or obviously the Unfinished Tales, but also, you know, the Father Christmas letters, you know, the, the letters that he wrote to his children <laughs> every Christmas. Uh, Rover Random, that uh, fun little story about the dog that goes to the moon. <laughs> all these different things come after he's gone or are published after he's gone but uh, Leaf by Niggle uh, is a story about a painter named Niggle and rather than summarize the story I'm, I, what I want to do is just read the opening paragraphs and then I'd like to read another selection but in between uh, those, those readings there'll be plenty for us to, to react to, respond to and so forth but let me, let me go ahead and just uh, begin with the, with the story as it is told. So here we go. Once there was a little man called Niggle who had a long journey to make. He did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. He knew that he would have to start sometime, but he did not hurry with his preparations. Niggle was a painter. Not a very successful one, partly because he had many other things to do. Most of these things, he thought, were a nuisance, but he did them fairly well, when he could uh, not get out of them, I should say, which, in his opinion, was far too often. The laws in his country were rather strict. There were other hindrances, too. For one thing, he was uh, something, uh, or I should say, uh, for one thing, he was sometimes just idle and did nothing at all. For another, he was kind-hearted in a way. You know the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more than it made him do anything. And even when he did anything, he did not, it did not prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper, and swearing, mostly to himself. All the same, it did land him in a good deal of odd jobs for his neighbor, Mr. Parrish, a man with a lame leg. Occasionally, he even helped other people from further off, 
if they came and asked him to. Also, now and again, he remembered his journey and began to pack a few things in an ineffectual way. At such times, he did not paint very much. He had a number of pictures on hand. Most of them were too large and ambitious for his skill. He was the sort of painter who could paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to catch its shape and its sheen and the glistening of dewdrops on its edges, yet he wanted to paint a whole tree, with all of its leaves in the same style and all of them different. There was one picture in particular which bothered him. It had begun with a leaf caught in the wind, and it became a tree, and the tree grew, sending out innumerable branches and thrusting out the most fantastic roots. Strange birds came to settle on its twigs, and uh, he had to attend to them. Then, all around the tree and behind it, through the gaps in the leaves and boughs, a country began to open out, and there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipping or tipped with snow. Nigel lost interest in his other pictures, or else he took them and tacked them to the edges of his great picture. Soon the canvas became so large that he had to get a ladder, and he ran up and down it, putting a touch here and rubbing out a patch there. When people came to call, he seemed polite enough, though he fiddled a little with the pencils on his desk. He listened to what they said, but underneath he was thinking all the time about his big canvas in the tall shed that he had built for it, out in his garden, on the plot where he had once grown potatoes. So that's the opening of the story. Now, anyone who knows anything about Tolkien knows that he's writing about himself. <laughs> and I can identify with every, every aspect of this thing. Everything from you know, having to be uh, you know, uh, attentive to the needs of other people when you kind of you know, want to get back to work on your own painting, you know, to, you know, periods in which you don't do anything at all and you're just sort of feeling guilty because you know that there's this project that you need to get to that you just can't find a way to work up enough energy to actually get at at that moment. But anyway, uh, now, Tolkien, of course, was an academic. And kind of underneath this is, you know, sort of the, sort of the world of the academ, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the professor who is... Uh, you know, taken up with the task of teaching uh, incorrigible students <laughs> who spout nonsensical things when they open their mouths or when they write things down, and you have to be patient and work with that stuff and actually point out the, just the, the, the absurdities without breaking out, you know, into laughter. <laughs> I have a collection of those. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... How, how do you guys uh, respond to this? Do you, can you identify with, with Niggle or Tolkien in the, in the person of Niggle at all? Uh, okay, I'll start. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, some things, so the, obviously the environment, and I don't know at what point uh, uh, Tolkien wrote this, but I know the, the Oxford context is one in which there is this high pressure all around anyway um, because people are publishing all the time, writing all the time, and there is this kind of fencing atmosphere during, yeah, especially yeah. during that time, where um, people now, now we ought to tell, let people know that 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 the things that Tolkien wanted to write would not be considered legitimate in that world. That's right. But his work, in of course, with language and, and the like, um, the, the, these were avenues for for him to to kind of um, take those into into new creative 
you know, ranges. Um, but w- one of the things that I think about is where he's talking about how he spends all time when he does finally get back to focusing on the work. He spends so much time on perfecting almost the leaf. <laughs> Rather, right, he right. wants to get the whole whole tree done, but um, he ends up getting slowed down for that. But I do. I kind of understand that pressure. I know with writing, a lot of the things that I work on and continue to work on is you spend a lot of time on those leaves. You you know you want to get the whole the whole picture done, but you also know that you really can't leave that leaf until that leaf is ready to be left. Now, now when, when we think about that, now, when you, when you say that, are you saying you've got to attend to that, to that leaf? In other words, the, de- the details surrounding this particular element or aspect of the work that you're, you're engaged in. Are you considering this uh, more as, you know, as an aesthetic concern or a, or a scholarly concern? I mean, I think it could be seen as both. Um, I, think, I think good scholarship is aesthetic in the sense that it's not just about getting your, you know, getting the, the, the paragraph right. I'll, I'll never forget, I, I have, remember a friend, when I was working on my dissertation, he was doing one at the University of Edinburgh, and he said, I have worked all week, and I've only produced one sentence. <laughs> and then what he said, but it was a great sentence. And I think that was the right, kind right. of... Well, you know, yeah. you, know, you know, that's condensation a lot of the time is, yeah. is where real genius... Uh, is expressed when you can say something in such a way that you're covering with that, that very once. terse sentence or remark a range of debates or you know uh, controversies yeah. or questions uh, that can be unpacked by the by those who know what you're doing and that's another thing to think about that is that is can will the people who who actually read what I'm working on or see what I'm doing actually be, get what I'm talking about <laughs> or see what I'm, I'm, I'm getting at, you know. Anyway, how about you, Glenn? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, Tom talks about the problem of focusing on leaves. <laughs> My problem is that I'm, I'm always acutely aware of the fact that the people who read my stuff probably have no background right. in what I do. Right. Um, and so when I want to focus on the leaf... You have to do the background. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it would be far more efficient if I were, you know, I, I have a philosophy of writing. Uh-huh. And it, it basically says that if I write for an intelligent layman, an academic can probably follow it. <laughs> um, so I'm always trying to write for the intelligent layman. Right, right. And that means that you always have to be painting the snow-capped mountains in the background yeah. when you're trying to explain the leaf. Yeah, because it provides context. It helps people see how this connects to other things, that right. kind of stuff. Right, right. You know, sometimes, you know, as a pastor, um, and this is this can be particularly challenging. And I've got one of my parishioners with us today. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, but but one of the things that I that I'll do uh, in a sermon, especially because I'm conscious that my stuff is, is recorded and is being listened to by people from all over the world. You know, it, it's kind of astounding to me when I look at the, de- the, the stats or the data on who downloaded a particular thing, where that person is from and stuff like that. Um, I'm often addressing theological and ethical questions that have never occurred to my people and probably never will. So in other words, I'm, I'm not uh, just speaking to my folks. I'm trying to address the sort of the challenges of the crises of our time. 
you know, one one area in particular is the problem of language, and we've talked about that all all you know all over the place uh, in you know our shows. But uh, for most of my folks, the problem of language doesn't even exist in their minds. Well, say what you mean, and mean what you say, and that's all you, there is to it. And it just kind of stops it with that. I wish that were true, generally speaking. <laughs> but there are a lot of people out there for whom, uh, you know, that uh, it's impossible to, to just kind of accept statements at face value because there is a hermeneutic of suspicion that's at work. There's, there's all kinds of, you know, theological and philosophical stuff that's going on in the background of overly educated people that causes them to sort of hold in abeyance the things that you're saying because they're examining them at a level that most of the people in my church wouldn't, it would never occur to them to examine them at that, at that, at that level. But anyway, at least I'm, I'm, I'm aware of these things and I'm trying to address them even though, you know, the people in the pews have no idea that I was, I was up to that. Uh, and I actually hope I'm doing it in such a way that they never do. Because that's the thing. You don't want to make it a distraction. You don't want to like say, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm about to address a problem that was uh, raised in you know, the evangelical philosophical quarterly or something. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. And, and they you know, just have their eyes glaze over and say, well, well you, know, <laughs> you know, why don't you talk to me? <laughs> so you know, you're trying to do things at more than one level. But get, getting back to this whole matter of what, what Tolkien's going on, you know, doing, we know that you know, having a little bit of background in the in the sort of the range or the intellectual terrain that that Tolkien was was doing his work in, you can read Lord of the Rings and see what he's up to uh, in terms of his scholarly work yeah, and what he was what he was the ideas that he was promoting, <laughs> the solutions or the challenges that he w- was proffering. Uh, but for most people, they read Lord of the Rings and it's just a great adventure story. And and he really wants it to be just a great adventure story in, cer- in a certain way. But he's doing more, you know, more than that. You know, the analogy, if you want to do painting here, the analogy that occurs to me is um, the so-called Flemish primitives, okay. which would be someone like Jan van Eyck. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with the Arnolfini wedding portrait, for yeah. example, look it up and look particularly closely. Get, you know, go out on Google and look at the mirror on the back wall. Zero in on that mirror and then look at the overall painting. What you find is that every, every single detail in that painting is painted with an excruciating level of accuracy. Mm -hmm. You can practically feel the velvet and the fur and the taffeta and the lace just looking at it. Um, It it, it is astonishing, you know, or the uh, the Ghent altarpiece or any of these kinds of things. And and what, what you see there the reason why Van Eyck was able to do what he did is because in the Low Countries, they had a long history of painting incredibly detailed and precise and accurate miniatures. Hmm. And he took the skills of the miniature painter and applied it to large canvases. Okay. So what Tolkien wants to do is he wants to make the perfect leaf. He wants to make the perfect story, the perfect short story, the perfect whatever and put it into a context in which every bit of it is just as perfect as that story is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's when you've got a mind as expansive as his, that's why he could live a thousand years and never complete right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, this actually gets to the end of the story, 
in a way you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but, but let me just sort of uh, get back to the story and, and kind of fill it out. I'm not going to read a whole lot more, at least at this point. There are some things I want to read a little later, but mm. to, to provide a little more background. So uh, in the introduction, we have Niggle, who's a niggler, you know, a guy who kind of is working on detail and, and small things and stuff like that, kind of straining at gnats, you could say. So he's, he's, he's working on this, uh, this, but he's working on this vast painting that's full of detail. And uh, he has uh, distractions, and one of those distractions is his neighbor, Parrish. <laughs> so as the story unfolds, it turns out that uh, uh, it becomes ever more sort of... Uh, that he needs to get this painting done before this journey he has to go on. Now, the journey uh, we, we kind of pick up in the course of the story is an allusion to death. So we've got, he's got to take this journey, which is very distasteful, that's going to take him someplace he doesn't want to go. So he's, he's, it's about dying. So the, he's going to come to the end of his life, and the question is, will I have completed my work? Mm-hmm. So uh, unfortunately, you know, wouldn't you know, Parish, the guy with the lame leg, uh, he has an issue with his house. Mm-hmm. He's got a hole in the roof, if I remember correctly. There's a storm, water's coming in, and uh, and so in desperation, he appeals to Niggle to to help. And so Niggle, you know, is you know kind of cursing under his breath, you know, very very uh, you know reluctantly, <laughs> you know, doing the what what is required, do, performing his duty to his neighbor. He gets on a bike. To, to ride to the to the builder, you know. So this is all very sort of uh, impressionistic, you know. This is mm-hmm. you know there's the builder. It's almost kind of a it's almost like uh, you know Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You know, you've got these different characters who kind of are what they're, as they're described parishes. You know, the parish that he finds himself in, this community, and so forth. But anyway, you've you've got you've got this need, and so he gets on his bike, you know, rides through a storm to get to the to the builder. And I think if I remember correctly, the builder is not home. Or the builder is out working, and so he has to leave a note, you know, for the builder to come and to fix the house. Anyway, in the course of this whole, of this, uh, this, you know, attempt to help his neighbor perish, he catches pneumonia. You know, so Niggle catches pneumonia, is sick, and eventually he ends up going on his journey. (laughs) (laughs) And in the course of this whole thing, you also have these uh, local officials who have uh, basically... Uh, judge that Niggle's been negligent in his responsibilities to his neighbor, uh, you know, even that, you know, in, in terms of providing for himself, this whole matter of, you know, losing the, the potato patch so that he could have us this, sh- this hmm. uh, shed that he could, you know, use as a, his painting studio. This is something that's, that's considered to be a foolish extravagance. All of these things hmm. occur. So you end up with this, you know, this sort of pressing ethical demand helping his neighbor perish. You have this sort of larger world of officialdom who are completely unsympathetic to, you know, Niggle's project. Because academics don't appreciate the Lord of the Rings. That's right. 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 (laughs) Or at least they didn't. Well, that's it. Well, And I I guess maybe this is one of the things that would be like uh, this marvelous kind of... uh, I don't know, revenge, Tolkien's revenge, is that now there are whole classes at just about any university you go to that are dedicated to nothing but the, you know, the legendarium and the Lord of the Rings in, in Tolkien's work. But anyway, that's a topic for another time. That's but maybe it's not, because maybe it does come into this. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, a couple, couple lines back where you were talking about kind of his wrestling with the variety of duties that he had, and yet they could be kind of almost a little bit irritating, but something he knew 
kind of had to do. Right. You think of a story, what's, uh, is it Hardy's Jude the Obscure? Is that the writer Jude the Obscure? I don't know. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Jude the Obscure's uh, story is that it's, it's a working class guy who basically wants to go to university. Christminster is the name of it. It's supposed oh. to be Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> right. And he has all the, the ability to do it. Right. Um, but he, through a, a series of things, he has to work as well and does his own studies. So he's one of the only um, people in, in, in his group. Um, that is mastering Latin, for example, to prepare to go to university, but it's always out of reach. He can never get a hold of it, and it mm-hmm. always is removed. And he, can, you, you can often, you know, they even did a film of it. You could see it in the background, you know. You see the steeple. It's always haunting and calling him, right. but he can never get there. And then he ends up a series of relationships. He falls in love. He's, I, I think he ends up, you know, marrying and having to go to work. But at one time he goes into a pub and he basically has it out because all these arrogant students can barely um, do the Latin and he gets up and quotes the, the whole right, Apostle right. Creed right, right. in Latin, you know, and then right. they're like, who is this guy? Well, he, and I think, you know, end of story, he never gets there. Yeah, right, right. Um, and so in, in a weird way, there's some things here that remind you of the, that, that, you know, there are things that, we, that are deeply connected to, to our loves and passions. They're part of our life's calling, if you will, and our gifts in a way to, to exhibit them in the fullest range as possible. And yet there are these duties that also are valuable. I mean, taking care and helping your neighbor, serving your neighbor. Right, right. And it's the way you balance these loves and the way they can become conflicts. You wrestle with, wait a minute, I need to go help this neighbor out here, but that's taking away from this love here. So it actually gets into a lot of, lot of oh, yeah. loyalties, I think. In fact, in the story, if I remember correctly, and I, I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't have enough time to refresh my memory and read the entire thing, but if I remember correctly, his canvas is used to patch Parrish's roof. <laughs> so here is his, his life's work that's being nailed to the roof of his neighbor's house in the midst of a storm. And uh, then he heads out on his journey that he doesn't want to go on. Now, what happens after that is where the consolation comes in. But let's just spend a little time reflecting upon, you know, sort of this crisis that he's, he's, he's experiencing. And it's, a, it's the crisis of what has my life amounted to? What have I got to show for, you know, all of this work I've put in? It's all been kind of recycled or repurposed. Um, now, the, the title of the story is Leaf by Niggle, and to kind of give away the ending, there is one leaf that survives <laughs> from the canvas, and it's framed and put into a museum at the end of a dark you know, corridor <laughs> in a part of the museum that hardly anyone ever visits, and, it's an, and, it, and, it, and it, the, t- the title of the piece is Leaf by Niggle. That's the only thing that survives of all of his work. Now, in my mind, it, you know, I immediately go to The Hobbit, yeah. you know, which is the only thing out of all of the stuff that he's been working on for decades at this point, because you know, the, uh, the Hobbit was originally published in the 30s, I believe, and uh, Tolkien began work in earnest on his, his great sort of legendarium, sort of the, the mythology of Middle-earth, if I recall correctly, during the First World War when he was actually in the trenches. Yeah. So, you know, he's been at it for, you know, some time, and this is the only thing he's got to show for it. And it was actually kind of a cast-off. It was kind of like, oh, well, let's uh, just take this uh, idea for a story that I've told the children, 
you know he was he was sort of you know if you remember how it how it goes you know how how it all began he's grading papers I think you know <laughs> yeah. he's actually sitting he's, he's sort of daydreaming and he writes in a hole there lived a hobbit or something like that in a that. hole in the ground there lived a hobbit right right and so this is sort of like you know, it's just throwaway line and then he says well I'll work with that and he builds a story of the hobbit out okay. of it so what is a hobbit what, well what 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 might that come from etymologically yeah I we, mean that's how he's thinking that's it that's right so he's thinking again at multiple levels which again, only a person who's able to think at multiple levels or have an appreciation for the deeper sort of structure of his story would, would, be, would be able to appreciate. My first, in, my first encounter with The Hobbit was when I was in junior high. So I was drawn into the story just because of its, just the marvel of it, you know, and the beauty of it and the, and the fun of it. Uh, but I always had a sense that there was much more going on in that story than many of the other stories I read. Yeah. The, the, I, I ran into Tolkien. I knew some guys in high school that were really into him. And when I graduated, just before going off to Michigan State, I decided I would try it. Okay. And so I uh, went to the library, and all they had was the Fellowship of the Ring. Okay. And I started reading it, and I thought, I don't know what the heck's going on here. i got to go get The Hobbit. <laughs> so I went out to Walden Books, right? <laughs> and I bought a copy of The Hobbit, and I brought it home. I figured I'd get the others if I were interested. And I started reading it, and the next day at 10 o'clock when Walden Book o- Books opened, I was there and I bought the trilogy. <laughs> um, and I just remember how utterly delighted I was yeah, in, yeah. in the whole thing. Hmm. And one of the things that set it apart from anything I'd encountered before, and, and this is really the genius of it, is the feeling of depth. Right, right. You knew as you read this that you were, there was a bigger world. It wasn't just, you know, with a lot of fantasies, when you read them, the only thing that really seems to exist is the storyline. There's nothing right. else there that's cohesive or coherent or whatever. Right. Um, in this, it was really obvious that there was depth. The snow-capped mountains in the background right. were there. Even when you couldn't see them, you knew, you right. sensed that they were there and that there was a context. Right, right. Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing and a beautiful thought. But as the artist, you know, wondering whether or not anyone would have an ability to see what you just described or get at what you just were getting at, I, uh, I think that any artist uh, at any level of skill wonders whether or not he or she is wasting his or her time. Now, is anybody ever going to kind of appreciate this for... And then your own doubts come into play. Maybe I am wasting my time. Maybe, maybe no one will ever get this. Maybe it doesn't even make sense. Maybe this is a stupid thing to do. Well, it's not only artists. I ran into somebody, and I don't endorse this, but I ran into someone who described teaching as casting metaphorical pearls before real swine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 I think it's in anything that you do. Right, you've got right. these kinds of questions. Right, right. So, now with that in mind... Um, what becomes of our work? Now, to put this into a larger theological mm-hmm. frame, what becomes of our work? Now, in the story, Leaf by Niggle, we have a marvelous ending, and, a, and, and it's a real consolation. And I'd like to spend the last part of the show, or the second part of the show, just reflecting on the consolation. So what happens, remember, Tolkien's Catholic. He goes to purgatory. So Niggle goes to purgatory, I should say. <laughs> now, it's not called purgatory, 
it's a it's sort of placed in a framework that leaves you wondering whether or not he's just been you know admitted to a psychological institution of some sort, some kind of hospital for for people who are despondent <laughs> or whatever. But in that uh, in that place, uh, he's given a set of uh, tasks that really are a kind of purgation. Now, I, I think it's worth thinking about this whole matter of purgation. I think that when we think about the larger world of Christendom, the, the Orthodox and Protestants have rejected purgatory as it's least uh, understood by Roman Catholics. Nevertheless, both the Orthodox and Protestants believe in purgation. Yeah. It's just a question of how it's accomplished. It's so, you know, so, so put that, you know, sort of in, a, in brackets. You know, if, if you're a person who's got you know, sort of uh, a feeling of animus that's sort of rising you know, in your chest at the moment because I mentioned that this story has some kind of purgatorial element. <laughs> uh, just put it, it, sort of just throw out the Catholic doctrine and just think about purgation in a larger sense. Throw out, throw out that animus, otherwise you'll be <laughs> that's right. purging it later. <laughs> that's, right, that's right, that's right, that's right. So, so anyway, he comes through this experience and uh, we're given the sense that it's taken a, a, a pretty fair amount of time, like maybe a thousand years, <laughs> for him to go through this purgation. Uh, but then uh, he gets on a train. Now, this is important because uh, when he goes on his journey initially, he gets on a train, but now he gets back on a, a different, or gets on a train again, and there's a very different uh, arrival, or a sense of arrival at the end of, the, this, of this journey. Hmm. So let me read you this next section, and uh, you'll see what I'm getting at. The train moved off at once. Nigel lay back in his seat. The little engine puffed along in a deep cutting of high green banks roofed with blue sky. It makes you feel like you're, you're watching, you know, uh, Thomas the Tank Engine or something. <laughs> uh, it did not uh, seem to last uh, very long before the engine gave a whistle. The, bra the brakes were put on and the train stopped. There was no station and no signboard, only a flight of steps up the green embankment. At the top of the steps, there was a wicket gate uh, and a trim head in a trim hedge. By the gate stood his bicycle. At least it looked like his. And there was a yellow label tied to the bars with Niggle, and it's all in capital capitals, written on it in large black letters. Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long, he found that the path on which he had started had disappeared, and the bicycle was rolling over a marvelous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to be remembering, or he seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar to somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow uh, came between him and the sun. Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Isn't it marvelous how there's this sort of sense of growing recognition and memory being, uh, being alluded to? Getting back to the story. Before him stood the tree. His tree. Finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch, he gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, but also to the result. 
But he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there, as he had imagined them rather than as he had, uh, than he had made them. And there were others that, he had, that had only budded in his mind, and many that might be, have budded if only he'd had the time. Nothing was written on them. They were just exquisite leaves, yet they were dated as clear as a calendar. Some of the most beautiful and the most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the Niggle style, were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other way of putting it. The birds were building in the tree, astonishing birds, how they sang. As they were mating, hatching, growing wings and flying away, singing into the forest, even while he looked at them. For now he saw that the forest was, up, was there too, opening out on either side and marching away into the distance. The mountains were glimmering far away. So here we have this marvelous, this marvelous uh, encounter with the tree. So a number of things occur to me as I reflect upon what's, what's happened here. Now, on the one hand, here we have a marvelous, we have a, we have a consolation. Yeah. The thing that he had labored on so long is there. Yeah. So it's not actually lost. Mm -hmm. Even though the, the actual canvas that had been left behind was lost and only one leaf had survived, here we have the tree, not just as he had painted it, but as it was, you know, sort of there in his imagination, hmm. even more fully what would have been if he had continued to work on it. And then there's this, this allusion to a collaboration with Parrish, of all people, hmm. this uh, Philistine neighbor of his who would actually, you know, sort of dismiss his labors as a waste of time. <laughs> he found this part of the, part of the completed artwork. Yeah, and later on in the story, Parrish joins him. So Parrish dies and is actually there at the tree as sees well. Part is his too. Yeah, and, and Parrish you know, sees the tree and recognizes it as recognizes it as the tree that that you know Niggle had been working on and, and last understands. Yeah. So even that sort of that twist or turn in the story uh, is, I think, conciliatory in the sense that people who in this life didn't know what you were up to, perhaps in the next will finally get it. But in a sense, Niggle is kind of getting it for himself for the first time. He's had a, yeah. he's had a vision all along. So he's, yeah, and all I hear is the professor from Narnia saying, it's all in Plato. That's yes, right. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, that brings up the question that, that I wanted to pose. Mm -hmm. Here's the question. Is the tree there because it was there all along? Or is the tree there because of what Niggle had done? Now, I'm not sure I know how to answer the question, but here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a verse from Revelation that comes to my mind when I think about this. It's, it's Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And their works shall follow them. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of people, I've, I've come across, you know, uh, really decent Christians who have a very Philistine, a very strong streak of Philistinism, if you yeah. know what I mean, who more or less consider... Uh, things like even this book, Leaf by Niggle, to be a tremendous waste of time. You know, if you really love the Lord, you'd be out on that corner right now trying to convert people to Christ. And that would be the only thing that you would do because that's the only thing that counts. That's the only work that will follow. The idea being that the only thing that you can invest in in this life that has any kind of eternal, you know, dividends that pay out yeah. uh, are the people that you've influenced. And, and don't get me wrong, I believe in that. 
But is that, are, are we implying when we, when we say something like that, that Mozart wasted his time? Well, it's, uh, I remember Nicholas Lash once saying some years back is that uh, oftentimes people tend to think, for example, of theologians as, you know, crusty old men <laughs> uh, slowly opening books and writing these, um, you know, these long abstract pieces of work that no one reads. And he said very few people today, when they hear the word theologian, would think of Mozart. And yet Karl Barth, he said, would be the first one to say that far before Schleiermacher or anything else, Mozart was whirling around in the freedom of the gospel in his music in ways that most Christians didn't even have an antenna for. Um, I, I think and, and by the way, most of, most of the people that, I, that come to mind wouldn't have any way of understanding the meaning of what you just said. That's right. Um, for them, the verse is the glorious freedom of the children of God. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and, and so what you see with Mozart is he's not bending the form of music and, and the order. He's, f he's free within it. He's not rejecting the created and moral order of God and, and its way of shaping music. He's actually free within it. I mean, he, he, that's, there's a long history of music. We can get into that, but at another time. We will. We will. <laughs> maybe, maybe very soon. Um, but one of the things is, is yeah, you have, to, you have to move away from very reductionistic understandings of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of good news. But as the, that good news unpacks, we begin to see Christ is the wisdom of God yes. and is that which holds all things together. So by the time you get into explications of the gospel, it's not merely an announcement that, you know, um, that, that you're invited in through the gospel. Um, sinners upon repentance and faith as gifts can come and be a part of this. Being a part of this is also part of that gospel. Mm -hmm. And that is, is that there's more to the gospel than just the gospel. It's everything that the gospel is saying and its impact on everything. Christ the gospel is of the Lord, the kingdom, the kingdom. And, and his lordship. And so, so what it means is therefore bringing all things into subjection to Christ is a way of taking all of our art, all of our thought, all of our music and seeing A, that it has its beginning its sustenance and purposes fully in him, and yet in doing that, it isn't just about him, but it is also the beauty of the genuine gift that each one of those things is as something that radiates his glory and allows us to enjoy his glory in that creaturely medium and let a real communion take place. So, so um, I think that there, it isn't an either-or. And so what you see here is someone like Tolkien saying that, you know, in the fulfillment of all things, that combination between God's perfect, um, perfect God's, uh, the mind of God <laughs> realized in the things that God has uh, set forth um, and brought to fulfillment um, really genuinely include the human being in their actions and their callings and their, their loves and their passions as part of that. So it is both God bringing this tree to perfection, God being the originator of it, but God doing it in such a way that the human creature is truly a participant in it, both to enjoy it but also to contribute to it. Um, so, you know, it's not, Christianity is not, not, when we say Christ is all in all, we're not saying Christ is the only thing. 
<laughs> right. We're saying Christ is the center of all things, and he is what allows all things to be brought to their beauty and perfection. You know, if, if we look at the story, yeah. where did the leaf exist first? Right, right. Or, excuse me, where did the tree exist first? It existed first in his mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it is a platonic, platonic ideal. Mm -hmm. However, the leaves have dates on them. Right, right. And they have actions that he does with parish and things like that. So you're exactly right. Even in Tolkien, in, in Tolkien, I would say almost explicitly, says it's not an either or, it's a both and. Well, this, this particular line gets to this very thing. This is where he announces, it's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, but also to the result but he was using the word quite literally. Notice that he qualifies this yeah. three times. Mm -hmm. He's referring to the art, he's referring to the result, he's re and he's using the word literally. What is the word? Gift. Yeah. Now, is he referring to the gift that he's received or the gift that he's giving? Well, both. Both. Well, this is, this is where his, his, uh, his Christian Thomism actually brings the Platonic, the Aristotelian, the leaves, the particular, into the gift character of all of that. And so what you have here, I mean, it's all ultimately uh, what Plato was up to and Aristotle was up to were things that Thomas saw with just part of the nature of, um, you know, the, the eternal and, and the temporal um, in their, their proper way of unfolding together. Thomas comes and says, you know what, there's a lot of things those guys had right, there's a lot of things they didn't, they didn't have right. By talking about gift, that was his way of kind of setting right what those traditions were trying to say. Right, and I think right. Tolkien was able to, to bring that probably to the richest uh, literary expression. Right. Um, and, and I think that's what he was up to very much. So, so, so what am I saying with all that? Well, what you have is this notion of, of th that, there, that everything we do here and now, the particulars, are bound up with the eternal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, in that kind of Platonic sense, um, cheap images of it. This is where he would be a little bit more right, Thomistic. Right, right, they are right. actually real here and now participations in a very small kind of way in that full picture. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to blow the whistle here. Yeah. Okay, for people who don't know Plato versus Aristotle on this point, let's think about leaves for a moment. Yeah. If you... Think about a maple leaf, or actually think about a maple tree in full leaf. Every leaf on that tree is, as Nickel points out, unique. Every one right. of them is different. Right. There are none of them that are identical. They're slightly different shapes, slightly different size, veining patterns, different whatever. They're all different. And if you go from a, let's say, a red maple to a sugar maple, they're going to be more different. If you go from there to a white oak, to a pin oak, to a rose bush, they're all leaves, but they're all radically different from each mm -hmm. other. So the question is, how can we have one word leaf that describes a whole bunch of things, every one of which is unique and different from everything else? Yeah. Now, there are basically two ways of solving the problem. You can either say that the thing that is really real, the, the root of the whole thing, is the idea of the leaf. Mm -hmm. And all of these other things are expressions of that ideal. If you do that, you're on Plato's side. Yeah. 
The other way of doing it is to say, now what's real are the individual leaves out there and we just abstract out of them a set of things, characteristics, that we then apply the term leaf to anything that has those characteristics. If you do that, you're on Aristotle's side. So you can emphasize the universal that ties the particulars together, that's Plato, or the particulars that from which the universal is derived, that's Aristotle. And so what Thomas does is he blends them, is that universal is what is the form of the particular. So you can only have access to the universal through all of those distinct particulars. Right. And so, I mean, I, I, I thought not all of our listeners might necessarily yeah. be conversant. Yeah, that's right. I, well, always, I always use leaves as my example for that. I wonder <laughs> if it's because I read Nickel years ago. Well, I, I, I think that the, it's very common uh, to appeal to that. Also, when we're talking about the problem of universals, which gets us back into nominalism. Yeah. So there are so many things going on here yeah. that if, if yeah. you have a background in Western thought, you can see... Tolkien is operating at, you know, even within philo- the sort of the philosophical realm at multiple levels. He's, yeah, he's, and, and, and then he's tying it into theologically something about the eschatological, well, that's the it. final consummation right. and significance. And, and so maybe if we thought of it a different way, you talk about sort of the utilitarian, which would be, you know, that which has to do with, with you know, pragmatic things about, you know, about, you know, a use that I have here and now. Right. versus uh, uh, something that is valuable for its own sake. And you, you almost see a little bit of wrestling with that. If, if, oh, definitely, if, it doesn't yeah. get wrestle, if it doesn't get recognized here, is, has it lost its significance? Well, and then, in fact, yeah. that's the way the story ends. Yeah. There's this sort of ir- this, uh, this ironic ending yeah. in which uh, some of the officials are, you know, reflecting on the insignificance of Niggle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and whether or not his life really did amount to anything. And uh, there's, you know, a, a, a dialogue between a, a schoolmaster and a uh, sort of a, a local functionary in the bureaucracy. And, and the local functionary more or less writes Niggle off as a waste. Not only was his life wasted, but he was a waste himself. Uh, he, he could have amounted to something if he had taken his ability to make, you know, uh, visual art and put it into the service of the state in some way. You know, there were propaganda posters. That's right. Things, things of that nature. That, that, yep. Then it would have been worthwhile. Another thing that I'd, I'd like to point out is that the opening of the Silmarillion, the music of the Ainur, yeah. mm. what do you see there? What you see is, a, is, well, the angelic beings engaging in an act of creativity that is then actualized as Middle Earth. Right. And what we have in Leaf by Niggle is Niggle engaging in a creative activity that is then actualized in eternity. Right. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because there is something also about, you know, that, that sort of uh, Christian Platonism, if you will, that talks about the eternal significance of, um, well, what Paul would say is, is not seeing any longer in part, but in, from the perspective of the full vision. And so what has to happen? Well, he has to be weaned off of the creaturely, and that's what his purgatorial state is, right? He's finally weaning off of, of impure loves, right? He's being purged of those things that block his ability to see things in the full light. Yep. And then and it is he's able to, of course, in Christ, he's therefore able to see all of this in, um, in that full light, and therefore it, it makes sense of from eternity the whole temporal um, trajectory. And and actually, as an (laughs) ex-Catholic who doesn't really accept the idea of purgatory, there's something there. I mean, think think about your life and all of the things in your life that don't really align 
with God. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all of the sins, all of the things that you hide that you might be aware of, you might not even be aware of them, but all of the ways in which you utterly fall short. Do you really think that if God took you right now and stuck you in heaven, that you would feel at all at home there? Right. <laughs> the idea of purgatory in part, and, and you, mm -hmm. you see this in Dante, mm -hmm. the idea of purgatory in part is to... It's not so much a punishment or something like that as it is a way of preparing you mm -hmm. to enter into God's presence. Yeah. To get rid of all of those things that stand in the way of your full enjoyment of God. Yes, yeah. And, you know, like yeah. I said, I don't accept the doctrine of purgatory and all of that, yeah. but, you know, there's something yeah. there that we really need to think about. Well, and, and I think from the, you know, the evangelical and the re Reformed world, Protestant world, I mean, we, we see it in our understanding of sanctification. It isn't just the brutal process of trying to, to um, you know, abstain from X, Y, and Z. It's that we, we, are, we are entering into, if you will, that freedom of Mozart to perform within the full vision and freedom of the children of God. So as we wean off of idols, right, that's what true knowledge of God, contemplation of who God is, weans us off of who God isn't. And in that process, our loves are being uh, changed. So we know, you know, therefore put off the old, put on the new. That process isn't just merely to be read as, in, in the wrong sense of, of legalism, but in, as Paul said, in the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is the way into the four first fruits of the beatific vision. This is the capacity to start seeing now what we know in part, which we will one day know in its full picture. Now in the story itself, the, uh, you know, the, the character Niggle doesn't uh, get to see the tree until he's actually passed through the purgatorial experience, or this purgatorial yeah. process. It's when he's actually gotten through this process that he is taken immediately to the tree and he sees it for what it is. And then uh, later Parrish joins him and then they both enjoy this place that is in some sense real, even though you know, in the course of uh, Niggle's life it, it seemed as though it was merely imaginary. Now does, I don't remember, does, does Parrish um, meet up with him later because he dies later or he just has a lot more purification? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I don't know if, uh, if I, I can answer that question. But, but I guess the, you know, this relationship between purgation and this final vision is, is worth thinking about, not only from the standpoint of Niggle's spiritual state, but from the state of uh, the, the sort of the, the ontological status of the tree. Now, here's, here's mm. the wild thing I've considered and thought about, and I don't think you can come away from this story without at least entertaining this idea. Um, are our works as sort of mundane and pedestrian as they seem to be, things that do follow us into the world to come? And if so, how, how, how can we understand that? Is, because I, I, think, I think that sort of the, the, modo, the modus operandi for most people is they, they see themselves as bringing eternity to their sort of humdrum existence. You know, kind of Brother Lawrence-esque, you know, where you kind of, kind of keep you know, your mind on eternal things and sort of try to read those things through the lens of eternity. But here I see a process almost uh, kind of working in reverse. It's not as though he's thinking about what he's doing as a way of even glorifying God. 
he's he's thinking about just the the work for its own sake. He's he's fully engaged in this work, hmm. and yet the work finds its uh, fulfillment, its uh, ontological sort of sort of, ma- sort of a culmination uh, in the world to come, and it's more real than he ever really uh, sort of understood or appreciated, and yet it's it's time stamped. And, and so I, so, but but because yeah. I, I mean, if we if we go full Plato. Yeah. The time-stamped leaves don't make sense. Don't make sense. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I think what it, what we have going on here is the classic Christian understanding of creation um, and and that kind of deep calling that we have as creatures to to complete our natures, um, and Christ being, of course, the, the the center of that completion. I mean, I think what you have here is very much so that all of those things that are haunting him all of his life to complete the big picture. Um, the seriousness of the leaves are part of that desire for that create our created natures for us to fulfill our natures. And but, that, but, but we're still kind of caught in ourselves, though, Tom, with the way you're describing it. Well, we are, but that that kind of fulfillment of our nature isn't the fulfillment of our nature turned in on itself. It's the fulfillment on our nature torn, torn turned to to God in Himself. And so who we are as the image of God only has its proper fulfillment in being in relation to God as directed towards God as he is himself. So what is involved in that work is something about the orientation of all things to God as okay, the Okay, so, so, so the all things, though, but in this case, uh, the ontological status of the tree. Now, that's the question. Is this, is this are we kind of in a kind of... Uh, uh, Burkean or Ber- you know uh, George Berkeley kind of frame of mind that where this is only sort of has any ontological status well, so far as it's being he's on to the seen. Pa- I think he's on with the leaf to the particularity of our gifts in their relation to God. So that tree, in some ways, is the fulfillment of everything he's worked towards in, of course, eternity in God, but also has a particular character of his own particular loves and calling. But and now gifts. it's externalized. Because parish can see the tree. It's externalized and grounded in as a gift of God, but also a communion with God. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm completely on board with that. But what I was trying to get at, though, Mm -hmm. is I think that the tendency for most people who might listen to this in our discussion Uh would would say that it's almost like a projection of, of, of Nigel's mind in some sense, that it's not got some kind of ontological sort of uh, uh, basis outside of his head. Yeah, so and, and I think I think in Tolkien's case, he's very clear it does. Yeah, yeah. You know that that mm-hmm. the very fact that some of the leaves, which I suspect are not ones that Nigel painted, yeah, were when he was working with Parrish. Right. You know that that yeah. again the works go and follow you know, them, follow. and the need for purification. I mean, yeah. that, that's the other side yeah. is that this is a holy thing that right. is something not within our capacity to see. Um, and to, to fully get a hold of. And right. it's, a, it's fully grace character at that point. Um, and so these things wouldn't be projections of, of, of ourselves because of the purification is, is the having to, to deal with those aspects of ourselves. I mean, it's definitely in a Christian. Sure. A Christian so, but, it, but it, well, the way I'm thinking about it, at least how, this, how the story unfolds is we have something like sub-creation mm-hmm. being described here. But the sub-creation finds its ontological... Uh, character as a as a real thing outside of mm. Nigel and Parish yeah. in God. Yeah, you know, I'm fully yeah. I'm fully on board with that. But 
but would that thing have actually come into being if not for the artistic enterprise of Nagel? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, no, I think that's, and that, that's the true significance of our work. And, that, and right, that's right. why he's focusing again on the leaf. Right. Because that particular leaf that he spends all that detailed attention to, never can able to deal with the big picture, in, in some ways is what is characteristic of it fully realized. That tree is filled with, with everything he's ever worked on, but also it, it's, it's, it's fuller fulfillment. And so, no, I think his, and you know, I mean, you, you can think of in terms of, of the church and our part in the church. I mean, um, Christ is the chief cornerstone, but he's building a temple. And we are building on that stone. Um, so what we do is not insignificant. It's not coming. He's, he's, he's brought it about so that each person's part in that has starts now has its fulfillment, eternal fulfillment, and contribution to make. It's, it's an invitation into it. God doesn't need to have us do it. God has, as a gift brought us into doing right, it. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. We're not trying to imply, that, or I'm sure that yeah. Tolkien was trying to imply that there's some sense in which God's creation depends on our and input. And that's right. where the emphasis on gift is. Yep. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a sense in that, that this is somehow something that was, he was just, you know, accidentally re- related to. Yeah, and, you know, is there any way that you could tell, you know, sort of, or, or, or sort of apprehend or, or present, you know, both apprehend or present, you know what this is all about except artistically in other words can you write a book about this and do it justice uh, you know and I'm thinking about in just terms of a prose, prose sure. you know sort of matter yeah I mean I think you could always do an analytical type book but it would never have the same kind of impact and it would never really I don't think generate the kind of discussion we've got that's right that's, that's right art. yeah um, you know what? What I'm struck by. I mean, I've had this thing going through my head the entire, <laughs> the entire thing. The the contrast in the vision of work uh-huh. between this and what. You know, if I, I suspect if most people look at their life, they're thinking. You know, if they think in these terms at all, 50 years after I'm dead, is anybody going to even know I li- existed? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, or. Uh, <laughs> My favorite demotivation poster, okay, from despair.com. It has a picture of Easter Island. And, and what, it, what it says is, a hundred years from now, people won't care how big my bank account is or how large my house was or what kind of car I drove. But the world may be a different place if I do something so mind-bogglingly strange that my ruins become a tourist attraction. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that, you know, that, but, sure, sure. but what, 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 it, what is the picture of the significance of your life? Right, right. And I, you know, I love what Tolkien does here because this is a question as a historian. I think about time all the yeah, time. Yeah. Sure, sure. You know, and, and I look at my own family and I know something about my grandparents and a little bit about my great-grandparents mm-hmm. and nothing about their parents. Right, yeah. right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, are, are my kids going to know much about me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, or, excuse me, are my, my kids' kids going to know much right, about me? Right. How about their kids? Right. Um, are people going to be reading the books I write 50 years from now? Probably not. Yeah. And that was the fear that, uh, that Tolkien had. Mm-hmm. I re- and I remember in, in Oxford, I don't know if he ever had this experience. I know it was for me. But you, you went, end up walking over a lot of gravestones yeah. right. all over the place there. Right, right. And I remember one day just walking and looking at the dates of some of these that you're just walking over so casually and thinking, 
you know, I mean, I understand all the talk, all our talk, I'm talking on a psychological level of, you know, the, 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 the return of Christ and the resurrection. But by now, compared to these people, no one's around who cares. Right, right. So there is this kind of futility to a lot of that talk if it isn't finally brought into this bigger eternal vision right. that, that, that the particulars of every moment, like this moment here, um, yes, it's enjoyed for the moment in its own sake, but the reason it is is because it's bound up with something, you know, and I think this at least Plato had an, an antenna for, but I think Christianity a more profound one because it was able to balance the genuine historical moment as having both a historical significance and yet also going, being a, a foretaste of its eternal part in the whole. I think that's a good point to stop because we've actually gotten to the place where we, really, we kind of need to stop. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, think that's, I think that's what the, the whole story is getting at, this kind of consolation that we, can, that we can have in terms of our works and their significance insofar as they're uh, participating in or in some sense connected to uh, the glory of God and this larger vision. Anyway. Uh, thank you for listening to the Theology Pugcast. It's been great to have you with us for another show, and uh, we will uh, return to this theme again, at least when, I, when it's my turn, because the next, next, next time that I get to, 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 to uh, introduce the theme, we're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. I want to continue this sort of you know, life after death and uh, the significance uh, you know, of, of things in the world to come as they relate to the life that we live in the world that we find ourselves in. Anyway. I've planted a seed in your minds. And uh, so anyway, thanks again for listening to the Theology Podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye now.